Well, look with me, please, at John chapter 3, and we will read verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly in the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Men in the ministry can be inclined to be jealous of one another. It seems to me, by and large, that men in the ministry are either on a pathway toward humility or on a pathway toward pride. And so it's a great joy for me to connect with men who are really not much interested in their own promotion, but are really interested in the promotion of Jesus Christ. And with those with whom that is the obvious and prevalent focus in their hearts and lives, what you begin to see is that people begin to follow with that similar humility. On the other hand, those who are not really interested in humility, they gain a following of those who are not interested in humility. There was some division here between John's disciples and what was going on in their own hearts toward Jesus. You and I have a clarion call from the Lord to ensure that what we are about is Jesus. It's one thing when you're in the ministry, especially professionally, to be subject to a willingness to gain a following, but it's easily similar for those who are not in the pulpit, for those who are not in a pastoral role. But I think here, what you and I will see this morning, if we give our attention exclusively to God and to his word, is that John describes a complete joy in seeing the bride of Christ hear his voice and turn to him so that you and I will experience that same joy. Just for a moment yourself, do a personal inventory. What are your passions? Let me ask you this. What has been your passion for the last 24 hours? Has it been some tenacious focus 
on something that you might, if you really worked hard, be able to color and say, well, no, it was all about Jesus, or was it really about you? The last week, the last month, the last year, your life, you know, what is the pattern of your life? Is it such that you are finding yourself increasingly passionately devoted, not only to the person of Christ, but to the conversion of others to him, such that you're willing to set your own desires aside? I think one of the the most misguided practices amongst professing Christians today is the idea that they need to defend themselves. That's what they're really doing. They're defending themselves when they say they're defending God, when they hear someone use God's name in vain. What's happening is they're taking that as a personal offense, and they actually misuse God's name by criticizing the person who did the same. What's really happening is they're just internally offended. They're all caught up emotionally, and how dare you say something like that? When a person says that, the fact is he's only expressing the true condition of his heart. You know, why wasn't someone just as angry with that person prior to him saying that as he was once he said it? You and I ought to be thinking and praying sympathetically toward the person who would use the Lord's name in vain, not so hyper-focused on his speech, but focused upon Christ and the grace of Christ that actually converts hearts, that leads a person to want to cry out genuinely, sincerely, and humbly to the name of God rather than using it in a sinful way. Well, as we endeavor this morning to see that John, in fact, does describe this complete joy in seeing the bride of Christ hear his voice, may we turn to him ourselves, that we would experience that same joy. In an effort to do that, point number one, I want you to see the joy of submitting to Jesus and seeing people turn to him. The joy of submitting to Jesus and seeing people turn to him. Our text reads, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, Because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. So baptism was going on. This was not yet Christian baptism. Uh, This was Judaistic baptism. It was the call to those who would engage in a devotion to the Lord. John was an Old Testament prophet. He was the last Old Testament prophet. He was the first Old Testament prophet in 400 years. And so Jews were drawn to him. Why? Because he was speaking Judaistic truth. He was proclaiming the same truths to which they were devoted in letter. But he spoke them in the true spirit of their intent. And so the division began to arise eventually with the fact that John was calling people to righteousness. Why did John die? Well, Herod had him executed because John confronted Herod about his adultery. John was calling Herod to holiness. When John leaned on Old Testament Scripture as an Old Testament prophet, his ultimate purpose was to point people to that which the Old Testament pointed people to, which, interestingly, the Old Testament people didn't much do that. What did they do? They misused the law. The purpose of the law, the intent of the law, the result of the law was to reveal to people that they couldn't fulfill the law. 
It was more than that. The law is, was, and, and continues to be an expression of the character of God. You read through the Levitical Code, what you see is uh, what initially seems to be an odd call to engage in certain conduct and to be prohibited from certain conduct. But why? To be set apart. And so those things weren't evil. Most of them weren't evil in and of themselves. They were simply a vehicle, a method by which God would declare separation and expose separation between his people and pagan people. Jesus dismissed all that, and we're going to see that in a moment. But when John called people to the Lord, and when he baptized them, he was really calling them to a legitimate Old Testament Judaism. And ultimately, Christian baptism was different from that. The ultimate baptism, which, by the way, we'll have the privilege to observe next Sunday, is baptism of the Holy Spirit. So baptism is only symbolic of that. That hadn't yet happened. So John's baptism was not reflective of that. So you can imagine the confusion in the hearts of those who were devoted, some in many senses devoted to the legitimate Judaistic baptism, and then others who were simply devoted to a false purification. And that's the question that comes up in the conversation that we see uh, that has taken place here. There's a misunderstanding of purification and how it works. In the uh, Old Testament system, in the sacrificial system, a priest was required to carefully and thoroughly wash his hands. Jesus abolished that. But the Old Testament, what I would call unorthodox, they would call themselves Orthodox Jew, believe that that still needed to happen. All these efforts at physical purification taking place so that God would be appeased, and yet they missed the point. Jesus said about them in Matthew 23 that they strained the gnat and they swallowed the camel. What a great illustration. You know, they miss the point. They're so detail-focused on things that really don't matter. The truth is, if you swallow a gnat, you're going to be fine. But if you swallow or attempt to swallow a camel, you're going to die. They focused on that which ultimately was not significant, and they missed that which was life and death reality. And this is the essence of all false religion today. I mean, who really enjoys being a Pharisee? Oh, the pressure. The need to have this appearance of being something that you're not. That's what Roman Catholicism is all about. It's pretense. Fulfilling the sacraments when you know you're not fulfilling them. Roman Catholicism is the new Judaism. And it's not new. It's been around for several hundred years. As I mentioned earlier, as we look to the joy of celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we're not just doing that so we have an opportunity to have a party. We're celebrating the doctrines of grace, the means by which God actually saves. We'll spend all five Sundays in October rejoicing in the work that God did through four of the best-known Reformers, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Holdrick Zwingli, and John Knox. And then each of the five Sundays in October will deal with one of the points of Calvinism. And, and you know what I'm convinced is going to happen? Because you are a humble people. Those of you who are already convinced that those things are derived from Scripture, you'll just be more restfully settled into the reality that they're there, and they will provide greater encouragement for you for your own personal growth, your own edification of others, and your evangelism. But I'm also convinced that people will come to our church for the first time 
because we're going to bill this, so to speak, as legitimately understanding the doctrines of grace. I have never in my life, I haven't lived a long life, and my experience is limited, I know, but I honestly have not met one person who rejects the doctrines of grace who gave me any indication that they actually understood them. It's not to say that they don't. I'm just saying I've never had that conversation, ever. I've had plenty of conversations with people who have said, I don't like Calvinism. And as I've gotten to talking to them, they have hyper-Calvinistic views of Calvinism. And so the joy that you and I will experience together with that, coming through the faithful teaching of four different men in our church and one friend of mine who will come and help us with that, is just going to be indescribable. My friend John Fallahy will teach on Roman Catholicism, but also he'll teach on how to reach Roman Catholics with the gospel. On that same Sunday, will take us into a deeper and more extensive understanding of the I from Tulip, irresistible grace. So as I said, we want to see the joy of submitting to Jesus and seeing people turn to him, that the right theology, the only theology, right, that comes from Scripture, a true understanding of the gospel. When John pointed to Jesus, it's interesting that some missed it. Somehow they thought their calling was to follow him and not necessarily to follow Jesus. John had not yet been put in prison, our text tells us. Now, where you see they went out into the Judean countryside or the Judean wilderness, that's nothing difficult to understand. They were already in Judea. So they simply left that area, went out into the Judean wilderness. Jesus remained there. Baptisms were taking place. John was also baptizing in a different area, and John chose that area because there was plenty of water. You have to have a lot of water to do a biblical baptism, and John had not yet been put in prison. John's not simply drawing attention here to an obvious fact. He's uh, saying this here because in Mark 1.14, we read, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We refer to this as a matter of the synopsis of the gospels or clarity of the gospels. There is no disparity. There's no disagreement between the gospels. But this seems like a contradiction. And I think it's important that we point out what's happening here. While John, the apostle here, points out that John the Baptist had not yet been put in prison, it would seem, as Mark is saying, based on the testimony of Peter, that had been arrested at the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. This is just another expression. This is just one more level of Jesus' historical ministry. This is not the first moment in which Jesus is ministering, but we do call it the inauguration because it's where he declares that statement, you must repent and believe in the gospel. So while Jesus was in the area at this point in our text, he had not yet made that comment in that context. And so while what at first seems like a little bit of a chronological contradiction, it's not. And uh, I think it's important that we bring some attention to that. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now, why would John's disciples be having a discussion about purification with a Jew? And who was this Jew? Was it Nicodemus? It's very possible. Perhaps it was Nicodemus. He was certainly confused 
And he would have been confused about purification and about baptism because he was ensconced in false thinking about purification and about baptism. So was it he who was having that discussion? We don't know, but we certainly know that it was someone of his stripe. Someone who had that same mindset. He was a Jew. He was clearly a practicing Jew. And the conversation would have certainly addressed, to some extent, the distinction between John's baptism, which was a legitimate Judaistic baptism, which did not bring about purification of the soul. It represented it. It was a matter of identification. But the Old Testament Jew, much like the modern-day Roman Catholic, would believe Baptism to be salvific. It's the, the method, right, by which a person actually is regenerated. And we know that, of course, to be false. But a little bit of background here from Mark chapter 7. This is uh, Mark chapter 7 is actually the first passage I ever preached from. I'd hate to hear a recording of it today. But I do remember being deeply moved by this distinction between legitimate religion and false religion. You know, a legitimate devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, and on the other hand, a devotion to appearance. Let's read through it together. You can follow along as I read. Mark chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. This will help us with the background of what would have been in the heart and mind of this Jew and why John's disciples were in some measure of consternation after the conversation, but then especially observing the fact that Jesus was baptizing, or his disciples rather. So now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, This is what moved me as a 23-year-old man years and years ago. Jesus says, verse 6, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Think of what's going on here. What? Isaiah was prophesying of us, but not in a good way? This would have been immeasurably insulting. Why did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Roman Catholicism teaching as doctrines the traditions of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way. I believe it's the NAS that says you do it nicely. Years ago, when I was a school principal, and I was walking across the gym after an assembly, a young gal was talking to the vice principal. And she looked kind of frustrated, and she said, well, I'll ask Mr. Barnett. So she said, Mr. Barnett, what does it mean when a guy is really, really nice? And I said, absolutely nothing. And she said, that's what Mr. Connor said. So clearly some guy was interested in her who was really nice, but he was spiritually bankrupt. And Mr. Connerth, wanting to help her have some wisdom, was trying to help her realize, so what, he's nice. That doesn't mean anything. I mean, it's nice, but that's all it is. Nice is just nice. 
But that is the manner by which the Pharisees taught legalism. And in doing so, they persuaded lots and lots and lots of people. While doing that, it was, of course, Jesus' effort to expose them. And so, verse 9, again, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. What the Pharisees had been able to do was persuade young people to follow them and to dishonor their parents because they were following them in the commitment to these traditions which they had taught would lead to uh, favor with God. Verse 14, Mark 7, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Yes, you can eat any animal, any food. And this is hard for some folks to comprehend. But Jesus completely declared all foods clean. Verse 20, he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The point being was that Jesus declared all things clean, and no, you don't have to wash your hands before you eat. Now, don't let my kids know I said that. I'm kidding, of course. But the point in washing our hands today is so you won't get some kind of skin-borne illness when you're eating, especially with small children. You want them washing their hands before they eat. But the point of the purification process with the Old Testament priest was symbolic. If some speck of dirt were on his hands, he would be held accountable for that in the same way that Uzzah was accountable for reaching out and touching the ark, even though it seemed like his heart intention was good. His heart intention wasn't good. And so for the priest, it was critical that he really legitimately got his hands physically clean. Why? Because that's what symbolized the clean hands of the heart. In John 2, verse 6, you remember, in the wedding feast... We read, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. What did Jesus do with them? Did he use them for purification? Now remember, this would have been a Judaistic family, or at least historically. And why do they have large water pots for purification? Well, for engaging in Old Testament Judaism and whether or not they were involved in the right mindset toward it, we don't totally know. But at this point, Jesus would have made it clear, you don't need that purification. Because you know what? We're going to use those pots to make wine. So he completely obliterated whatever 
thoughts they might have had about him being committed to Old Testament Judaism. Now, after this conversation that John's disciples had with this Jew, they obviously were concerned. It says, They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Now, you know, probably, I would think by now, especially since you've done the study guide for this passage, that Jesus wasn't actually the one literally doing the baptisms. John 4 tells us that. It wasn't Jesus physically engaging in the baptism. But the point is, much like a leader of any organization is involved in doing something when the people who follow him are doing it, it was Jesus' leadership that was engaged in the baptism. Imagine the potential for animosity and jealousy if someone had actually physically been baptized by Jesus, the potential for idolatry of their own baptism. We don't know entirely why, but the fact that he didn't physically baptize people certainly prevented the idolatry of their baptism. Jesus commissioned others to do that. But John's disciples were concerned that they were, it says, all, right, going to him. We don't know entirely what they mean by all, but it certainly means a lot. In their minds, it was too many. John What's happening? You're losing your following. Well, while John's disciples were clearly concerned that he may be losing popularity and that the one across the Jordan, interesting they call him the one across the Jordan, may be stealing his following, they shouldn't have been because back in verse 6 of chapter 1, we read there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but he came to bear witness about the light. Now, I'm not pointing this out to say that they would have read this because they wouldn't have read this, but they would have known it to be true because it was John's character to display the fact that he wasn't the light, but that he was pointing people to the light. In addition, in verse 29 of John 1, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Why did John come baptizing in water? That Jesus would be made known to Israel. Verse 32 says, John bore witness. And this is, these are John's actual words, right? This is a good reason for them to have known better than to have the conversation that they had with him where they're saying, John, what's happening across the Jordan? No, we're, we're losing our team. But here, John specifically in verse 32 himself says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. His disciples certainly would have heard this. But you ask, so why were they operating as if they hadn't heard that? Well, the same reason you do. In your discipleship, when you're following someone and you've heard something time and time again and you seem to forget it, I've been guilty myself. You know, you hear truth, you certainly are convinced that it is true, and yet the 
nuances of the human heart, while the flesh remains, are such that there is at least occasionally a willingness to abandon what we know to be true and to become jealous. To think that somehow things are falling apart. Why do we think they're falling apart? Well, because they may be. It may just be that we have been hyper-focused upon our own construct for ministry rather than hoping and rejoicing when people actually come to pursue Christ. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Well, that's perspective, huh? How often have you found yourself becoming disgruntled, maybe even a little angry when someone seems to be taking credit for something you think you've done? Or maybe it's some personal possession uh, that you value highly and uh, you're convinced that it's slipping out of your hands. John says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. Back in chapter 1, verse 19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Remember this when we went through this? John confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And ultimately, John boils it down to this. I'm a voice. Talk about a low view of self. I'm just vocal cords. That's it, man. I mean, I've got a message. It's the message of Isaiah. Nothing else matters. You know, John the Apostle referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He gave no declaration of his accomplishments, anything he had done. He didn't give you know, some sort of personal resume of his spiritual achievements. Paul said about himself that all his spiritual achievements in his own personal resume were rubbish. They were dung. But far more important to know the surpassing value of Christ Jesus as Lord In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, Paul gives a very well-delineated address, a very clearly outlined address of the dangers of following a man with improper perspective. There's nothing wrong with following a man. Paul commands it. You are to follow. You are to be discipled. You are to seek the counsel of others. You are to sit under the leadership of others. But when there is an inappropriate, really misguided, and actual idolatrous following of that man, the dangers are immeasurable. Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I was in a conversation with a dear friend just a few days ago about what happens when someone's first converted to Christ. And some of the tragedies that can go on. He's excited, he's growing, maybe even in his own mind because he's in his you know, 20s or 30s or 40s or even 50s that he's got a lot to bring to the table. And so he gets kind of confused about the distinction between that which is actually being nurtured in his heart as spiritual maturity and that which he has as a repository of experiential knowledge. 
And so he confuses the two. So he himself is confused and misguided. And then, then, especially in a man-centered environment where people are encouraged to do something like ask Jesus into your heart, even though there's no gospel delivered, and then there's this affirmation, welcome to the family of God, and then there's absolutely no interest in nurturing holiness because you can't with a false convert. A person is finding himself devoted to something that he's unable to engage. It's tragic. But even in our church, legitimately devoted to the sovereign grace of God, believing that it's God who saves someone. And it could be that in our church or in other solid churches, there are many solid churches, right? It could be that a person legitimately is converted. He legitimately comes to know Christ. And then there are folks in the church who've you know, kind of been in the church environment for a while, and they have these expectations of this person. Why? Well, he's a Christian. And for crying out loud, he's 30 years old. So why is he doing that? And, you know, there's some disgust and some disdain, and there might even be some self-righteousness, you know, rather than a willingness to ensure that that person is being discipled. Now, why does discipleship not take place? I say discipleship doesn't take place because discipleship doesn't take place. What I mean by this is that a person comes to know the Lord and he grabs the excuse of, well, there are these other people in the church who aren't being discipled and never have been. They don't find any interest in it, so why would it be wrong for me to not be discipled? And this is especially critical with the young people in our church. You know, there's a seeming heightened interest in truth. And what do we do with that? Well, if you were here for our wonderful children's ministry meeting that took place in here yesterday morning, which was great, looking at all these faces of people who are so devoted to Christ, devoted to our children, you would have heard us read from our philosophy of ministry statement that what we are committed to is not only sharing the gospel and nurturing a hunger for the gospel and teaching the truth about the character of God, but being careful to watch and see if there's legitimate life, legitimate repentance, legitimate regeneration, you know, signs, legitimate biblical signs of that happening in a person's life before we would say, welcome to the family of God. But being honest about it, hey, I see your interest here. I see you cultivating an interest in worship and in the word of God and in serving and So there's a nurturing of that. Whereas the person who seems to express some favor for the Lord and some profession of faith, but no real interest in the word, no interest in singing, no real interest in evangelism, you know, we've got to search that out. We've got to test and see what's going on there. Well, Paul, in his address here in 1 Corinthians 3 is pointing to the fact that with the Corinthians, there was so much misguided conduct. Why? Because, as he says, they are infants. They're infants. So that's the basis upon which he goes on to explain, part of the problem is that some of you are following men with an idolatrous perspective. The remainder of verse 3, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What he's saying here is that you're acting fleshly. You're acting as a human who is a new believer who doesn't know better or 
should know better and still is just not mature enough to abandon that practice. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul's hope here is to draw attention to the fact that there are those who may not really even be following Christ. Some of these men who were having this discussion with a Jew may not have actually understood, much less embraced, the concept of pursuing the Lamb of God to whom John was trying to direct them. And so there was a a jealousy brewing I have the great privilege of asking a pastor who pastors a church about 20 minutes from here to come teach at our men's retreat. Now, some might say, well, you should be careful doing that. You know, people might leave here and go to his church. When you find a legitimate sister church, in our experience, it's extremely rare. You should capitalize on that and do everything possible to learn and to grow and to maybe even mimic some of their practices. So it's my great joy to acknowledge that the Lord will use others. You know, I've had plenty of men come in and preach. I love it when our men preach. Next month, I'm preaching one time, and I'm thrilled that other men will be here to preach. Why? Because the foundation laid is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the foundation. It is not about me. By the way, your study guide, it's not about the sermon. We don't give you study guides on our sermons. The study guide is on the passage to which the sermon is committed. Did you ever notice that? We never ask you questions about the sermon. Now, I'd love to have your input on the sermon, but the greater issue is that you're growing as a result of studying the passage that I'm teaching from. Well, verse 29 in our text, back to John 3. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. I was in 13 weddings before I was in my own. 13. Now, for a couple of those, I was officiating the wedding. But for the most part, my friends are all getting married. You know, come to be I'm around 21, 22 years old. My best friend gets married. My other closest friend gets married. A third friend gets married. You know, five years down the road, it's, you know, it's me, not married. And then over the years... More and more people getting married. The first wedding I was ever in, I was telling somebody about this the other day. It was my sister's wedding. I was 12, 1977. You know, I've got the big, the really big fluffy on your shirt, on the tuck shirt, you know, and then the big bow tie. And I guess they didn't make pants long enough for a 12-year-old because they were literally about eight inches too long. So my first experience in a wedding, I was not the best man, but it was a little bit of a frightful experience. I got to wear this tux and stand in front of all these people. So by the time I'm 20, 23, 25, I'm pretty good at being in weddings. And it hit me one day that I'd been in quite a few weddings. And I was so pleased, I was so grateful that in every one of those circumstances, it was always my joy 
There was never a moment where I, I thought, when's it going to be my turn? It was always my joy to see my dear friend united with his bride because I loved whoever it was. I loved my dear friend so much. I just was so happy for him. John understood that this was his role. He understood that the one who is the friend of the bridegroom is committed to doing that which is best for the bridegroom. Now, in the Jewish culture, the friend of the bridegroom, what you might call today the best man, was responsible for a lot. I didn't know that the first time I served as the best man in a wedding. I was 15 or so. It was a few years after my sister's wedding. Somebody asked me to be the best man in their wedding. And after the wedding, my mom said, well, how did that go, you know, taking care of everything? I'm going, what? I'm just eating cake. What are you talking about? Yeah, you were supposed to take care of the groom and this and that. Okay, that, that's nice to know. John certainly knew that. John understood that that was his great role and that it would, in fact, produce joy. His disciples weren't experiencing joy when they saw Jesus' disciples baptizing others across the Jordan. So they come to him with great concern. In Isaiah 62, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now, why do we put so much emphasis on church membership? Because it is a marriage. It's a marriage. And yes, friends, it is every bit as serious as your human marriage. Every bit. Now, why do we call you when you engage in membership with the Anchor Bible Church to associate with the Anchor Bible Church? Because we want the Anchor Bible Church to reflect this marriage. You know, the person who kind of dances around, visits this church, that church, this church. Nothing wrong with visiting churches until you get settled in. But the person who says, you know, I I do this at that church and this over here at this church, that is not biblical marriage in terms of what it's like to have a relationship with the church. You've got to be reliable in your local church. Why? For the same reason that a human wife is called to be responsible She's called to be a helpmeet. And she looks to her husband for leadership and guidance and headship. The church is the bride of Christ. And John was thrilled. John the Baptist was absolutely thrilled. He was delighted to see people looking no longer to him, but looking to Jesus, the Lamb of God. That was the whole point of his coming. He was a voice in the wilderness who paved the way. He declared the way. He straightened the paths for people to see the Lamb of God. That was his ministry. Is that your ministry? Is that your greatest joy? Are you all caught up in how you've been offended over something? 
What's your greatest joy? What completes your joy? John said it this way, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John the Apostle in 1 John 1 verse 4 said, We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What completes a pastor's joy? Same thing that completes a parent's joy. You see people faithfully. I mean, when I have conversations with you, you know, after the sermon or throughout the week or whenever, and you're telling me about how you're learning and growing and you're putting off false theology and you're embracing sound theology and you're being humbled by that, and you're strengthened to share the gospel and to restrain your anger in moments in the past when you had not had the self-control to do that. And you're being humbled, and you're growing in your love for your neighbors. You know, on and on and on and on and on. All these conversations that you and I regularly have with each other. You know what happens in my heart? Sometimes I'm so overjoyed I can't speak. It's difficult at times for me to know exactly how to respond except to say, praise God that he is doing that. Even as Paul talked about laying that foundation, who was it that really laid the foundation? It was the Lord. It was the Lord. John goes on to say, he must increase, but I must decrease. You know, a lot of times I've memorized a passage and and maybe not done such a great job prior to memorizing that passage to really understanding it in its context. Let me tell you something. I have a new understanding of this passage. I've probably quoted this verse as much as I have any. This is not just about you being brought low and Christ being made much of. That's typically how I've used it. It is that, but it's much more than that. It's about evangelism. It's that you would see people coming to know Christ, and then you would be able to say, Jesus is not only increasing in my heart, he's increasing in the hearts of people who who are observing my life. See that? So for John, he was saying, praise God, people are leaving me and going to Christ? Awesome. That's amazing. It's happening. That for which I exist is actually happening. He could say, I rejoice. You see, while John's joy was at its apex, and it couldn't have been greater. In fact, he says it was complete. His less mature disciples couldn't see his joy in him, nor had they really ever experienced it. They were too focused on their misguided ideas about ministry and about following John and about what they thought their relationship with John should be. John says his joy has climaxed. And they don't even see that in him. How is that possible? Because of their idolatrous view of their relationship with him. They were misguided. John MacArthur once said, the measure of success for any ministry is not how many people follow the minister, but how many people follow Christ through the minister. Lord, we rejoice in your inerrant word. As it has been my privilege so many, many times to hand off a young lady from her father to his new son. 
and the rejoicing that happens, Lord, when a man has for her whole life prepared a little girl for her husband. And then for me to have the privilege to call the congregation who's there looking on to enjoy that with them. I think of my own father-in-law who prepared my wife for me for a couple of decades and then so willingly, so joyously, so happily gave her to me. And the immeasurable joy as, as I watched her walk down that aisle, Father, knowing that she was mine and I was hers. Lord, we plead with you to give us that kind of joy, not man-made, contrived, external expressions of false joy, but the joy that comes from seeing people turn to Christ, that the bride of Christ would rest in its head. Jesus. Amen.